You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 306 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Today we're taking a class held by the bard Terence McKenna. This is a very enlightening talk and I implore you to listen to it. This one is historically focused and covers a wide range of topics. Some we've talked about before on the podcast, but in this talk Terence gives a great unifying story to all these different topics like Hermeticism, Christianity and magic. He also talks about the Mandaeans, an ethno-religious group native to southern Mesopotamia. They were possibly the earliest to practice baptism and are the last surviving Gnostics from antiquity. You should check out Mandaeanism once you've listened to this episode. It's a very interesting religion. In this class today by Terence, he will uh, talk a bit about psychedelics as well. This is the legendary psychonaut Terence McKenna after all. Now you might uh, be the kind of listener that skips the Terence episodes I do, but that is an enormous error on your part. Give it a chance. Here is Terence. We've probably staved off serious work just about as long as we can. Well, today's thing is sort of a return to a more uh, orthodox educational kind of mode, hopefully not to such a degree that it's boring. Uh, but um, the agenda is to talk about uh, hermeticism and alchemy and the way in which this tradition, which is counterintuitive and uh, heterodox, if not heretical from the point of view of Christianity, and uh, you know, what it can mean for the present, what it means for the psychedelic experience, what it means for the notion of uh, the end of history, and how the loss of this point of view has probably done us uh, a certain amount of damage. The great tension in the Middle Ages was between, uh, the late Middle Ages, was between the um, magical schema, the magical view of human beings, and the um, Christian view. And the Christian view is very strongly marked by the idea that uh, of man's fall, that we screwed up early on, and somehow then, by virtue of that, we're forced into a secondary position in the cosmic drama. We are doing penance as we speak. The world is a veil of tears. The lot of human beings is to till hard land. And, uh, you know, we are cursed unto the 19th generation or something like that uh, by the fall of our first parents. Uh, and we can be redeemed, this is I'm giving you the Christian rap, we can be redeemed through Christ, but we don't deserve it. It is if you are saved, 
it is because there is a kind of um, a hand extended to you from a merciful God who is willing to overlook your wormy nature and draw you up in spite of yourself. And this is deep in us, no matter how, uh, you know, whether you're, you may not think you've bought in because you're black or because you're Chinese or something, but it's just in the air we breathe. It's what Western civilization makes you think, whether you want to think it or not. You know, even if you don't come out of these traditions, uh, for us, the concept of that you've got to pay your dues. Human beings are co-partners with deity in the project of being. This is the basis of all magic. You see, in a Christian context, Magic is heresy because it implies that that uh, man can command God to act. In other words, that in some strange way, the magician compels nature to behave as the magician desires. Uh, in Hermeticism, it isn't so much put in terms of compel, but the idea is that, that uh, humanity, human beings, men and women of great spiritual accomplishment are co-partners in the project of being. And that God, as it were, stepped off the stage of creation with it only 90% completed. And the rest is left in the hands of his brother, the Hermetica actually refers to humanity as the brother of God. So it's a completely different attitude toward being human. It's an empowering attitude. With power comes the potential to abuse power because you're no longer a worm. You remember that image in Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? he says you're 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 like a worm suspended over an abyss held there only by the um, the the love of a merciful God implying that if he weren't a merciful God he just let go of your thread and you'd go down the tubes uh, in the hermetic magical view human beings are not tainted by original sin and no, no ideology is without the potential of abuse. Uh, the hermetic attitude in the Renaissance was summed up in a single aphorism by the great uh, Renaissance Platonist Marcello Ficino. And what he said was, and I have to, you know, I, there's no sexism in all of this. You just have to realize these guys were primitive types and they hadn't confronted uh, the, poli the political issues we've confronted. So when they say man, they mean humanity. The Renaissance magical attitude is summed up in Ficino's aphorism, man is the measure of all things. And this is, uh, this is a double-edged sword. Because in a single affirmation, 
you cast off the guilt trip. You cast off the view of ourselves as a flawed creature. But when you say man is the measure of all things, I mean, you could be the chairman of the board of Louisiana Pacific or Dow Chemical. I mean, this is approximately their attitude. In other words, it ain't rainforests, it's not the life of the earth, it's none of that malarkey. We are to be the measure of all things. So the, it has to be tempered. Uh, we'll probably end up talking a bit here about what is about the pathological expression of the hermetic position, which is called Faustianism. And Faustianism is where you have unbridled ego, unbridled faith in the intellect so that you, uh, you proceed forward without self-doubt. If you haven't read Faust recently, uh, it's a surprising read. Uh, first of all, you know, it's very funny. It's hilarious. It's funnier than any of Shakespeare's plays, I think. And... Uh, the way it ends is in the guy dedicates himself to uh, land reclamation and the draining of swamps to build low-cost housing for poor people. I mean, people don't know this. They, they're caught up in the images of the center of the story where, you know, magical power is running rampant. But Faust's final conclusion is that he should do some good work for the least of society and give up these uh, Promethean and titanic dreams of, uh, of the mastery of power. Well, uh, a little bit of history about this hermetic ideal. It's an interesting story in the light of our discussion of time yesterday. Western civilization, in a way, can be thought of as an accumulated series of misunderstandings. And uh, one of the most severe of these misunderstandings has to do with this whole business of Hermeticism. The Renaissance really believed that Hermes Trismegistus was uh, a, a great teacher of antiquity who preceded Moses who was in time older than Moses. And uh, they, they had what they called um, the Prisci Theologica, the three theologians. And they were Hermes Trismegistus, Moses, and Orpheus in that order. And uh, the reason that, that I say Western civilization is built on a series of misunderstandings is because they got it all wrong about Hermes Trismegistus. And there was great, uh, conf great uh, confusion and unhappiness in the, uh, in the uh, 16th century when Marie Cassabon, who was an early philologist, attacked the dating of the Hermetic corpus and argued correctly that this could not possibly have been written in a period preceding Moses, that in fact this was post-Christian, 
written no, early, no earlier than the first century A.D. This is the equivalent of us finding out that, uh, you know, George Washington was alive in Greenwich Village in the 1930s or something. I mean, it was a completely mind-bending realignment of how people thought the history of the world had unfolded because they had up to that time thought that um, when you studied Hermes Trismegistus, you were reading the oldest philosopher in human history. Actually, it's very late. And in a way, this is what destroyed the magical uh, alternative. The, the advent of modern philology showed that these so-called ancient texts were not ancient at all. They were late Roman. They were Hellenistic. And uh, so strongly uh, was imprinted in the Western mind uh, the, what's called, and we've talked about it here this weekend, what's called the nostalgia for paradise. In other words, the belief that the older it is, the better it is. And Giambattista uh, Vico in La Ciencia Nuova laid the basis for this kind of thinking. It's called classicism in the Renaissance context. So once they found out that the hermetic corpus had been written in, in late Roman times, it was like it was finished. And, and science was able to use the confusion in the magical community at that point to force its own agenda very strongly. And there, were num there have been numerous episodes of misplaced dating like this that have contributed to the confusion around the history of magic. For example, and I hope this doesn't bring somebody rising out of their chair in an air-clawing rave, but um, Rosicrucianism rests on a whole bunch of phony dates because they want to tell you that, that uh, somebody named Christian Rosencrantz wrote a book called The Chemical Wedding and uh, sealed it up in a time capsule in the, in the uh, uh, 12th century, and that it was then uh, dug up in the uh, 15th, 15th, 16th, dug up in the 16th century. But actually, all these Rosicrucian documents were ponied up by people in the 16th century who had a very complicated political agenda, which we will probably discuss as part of this, uh, this weekend. Uh, hermetic philosophy is based on what is called the hermetic corpus. This is a group of books, uh, uh, the most important of which is called the Asclepius. And these books, most of them, were completely lost during the Middle Ages. Uh, at the fall of the Roman Empire, copies of these hermetic manuscripts were systematically destroyed by enthusiastic Christian barbarians. And uh, uh, the, her the hermetic manuscripts were scattered and they only survived then in monasteries in Syria and places like that. 
Well, then in the Renaissance, uh, the Council of Florence, under the patronage of, of uh, the Borgias and people like that, uh, they became very, there was this great interest suddenly in antiquities because these Roman statuary and stuff was coming out of the ground. So the Council of Florence commissioned a character named Gemistus Pletho to go to Syria and bring back these manuscripts. And they established a translation uh, commission. And they had, in manuscript, the, ma the, the works of Plato, the works of Hermes Trismegistus, uh, a whole bunch of ancient literature. And to show you what the psychology of the Renaissance was, here they had Plato, which they hadn't been able to read for a thousand years, sitting there waiting for translation. And uh, um, the, the uh, uh, Cosimo de' Medici said to Marcello Ficino, Plato can wait translate the hermetic corpus first and so it was done if you're interested in in renaissance hermeticism you can't do better than read uh dame francis yates book giordano bruno and the hermetic tradition well i want to read you some of this stuff because uh, it's very interesting and it has a uh, a modernity that is astonishing. It's also very psychedelic. Um, here's a little passage on, uh, on uh, the imagination. I'm reading from Book 9 of the Corpus Hermeticum in the Scott translation. This is a four-volume set. I only brought the text and translation volume, but... Uh, if you read Greek, it's all here. If you don't, it's all here in English. Uh, but this will just give you a, a feeling for the approach. If then you do not make yourself equal to God, you cannot apprehend God, for like is known by like. Leap clear of all that is corporeal and make yourself to a like expanse with that greatness which is beyond all measure rise above all time and become eternal then you will apprehend God think that for you too nothing is impossible deem that you too are immortal and that you are able to grasp all things in your thought to know every craft and every science find your home in the haunts of every living creature make yourself higher than all heights and lower than all depths Bring together in yourself all opposites of quality, heat and cold, dryness and fluidity. Think that you are everywhere at once, on land, at sea, in heaven. Think that you are not yet begotten, that you are in the womb, that you are young, that you are old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Grasp in your thought all this at once, all times and places, all substances and qualities and magnitudes together, then you can apprehend God. But if you shut up your soul in your body and abase yourself and say, I know nothing, I can do nothing, I am afraid of earth and sea, I cannot mount to heaven, I know not what I was nor what I shall be. Interesting, very different 
from the humble yourself, uh, hard labor, spun wool and watery beer approach of medieval uh, Christianity. Um, here's an amazing passage. Uh, you know, people like to think people thought the world was flat until uh, the Renaissance. Uh, this is a, an incredible psychedelic image of outer space that is second century AD. Would that it were possible for you to grow wings and soar into the air, poised between earth and heaven, you might see the solid earth, the fluid sea and the streaming rivers, the wandering air, the penetrating fire, the courses of the stars, and the swiftness of the movement with which heaven encompasses all. What happiness were that, my son, to see all these borne along with one impulse, and to behold him who is unmoved, moving in all that moves, and him who is hidden, made manifest through his works. And it goes on and on. It's very readable. It's very literary. It's highly poetic. It's a celebration of nature. The notion of sin is completely absent. And it rings with a kind of confidence, a kind of joy that uh, was completely running counter to the brimstone and damnation point of view of Christianity. Here's a... Uh, a, a, uh, to me, a, a psychedelic passage. But he who presents all things to us through our senses and thereby manifests himself through all things and in all things and especially to those to whom he wills to manifest himself, begin then, my son taught, with a prayer to the Lord and Father who alone is good. Pray that you may find favor with him and that one ray of him, if only one, may flash into your mind so that you may have power to grasp in thought that mighty being. For thought alone can see that which is hidden inasmuch as thought itself is hidden from sight. And if even the thought which is within you is hidden from your sight, how can he, being in himself, be manifest to you through your bodily eyes? But if you have power to see with the eyes of the mind, then, my son, he will manifest himself to you. For the Lord manifests himself ungrudgingly through all the universe, and you can behold God's image with your eyes and lay hold on it with your hands. If you wish to see him, think on the sun, think on the course of the moon, think on the order of the stars. Who is it that maintains that order? The sun is the greatest of the gods in heaven. To him, as to their king and overlord, and all the kings of heaven yield place. And yet this mighty God, greater than earth and sea, submits to having smaller stars circling above him. Who is it then, my son, that he always obeys with reverence and awe? Each of these stars, too, is confined by measured limits and has an appointed space to range in. Why do not all the stars in heaven run like and equal courses? Who is it that is assigned to each its place and marked out for each the extent of its course? And so forth. So it's, uh, it's a nature-oriented, celebratory. It glories in 
the exercise of the mind. It is not doctrinal. It is not uh, pietistic. It is magical, psychedelic, expansive. And I'm not implying that they used psychedelic substances. The evidence for that is incredibly murky and hard to get at. And probably they didn't. I mean, one of the real tragedies of Western history is that Western Europe is so poor in psychoactive plants. I mean, had, had uh, Western Europe stayed in touch with the mystery religions of ancient Greece, Christianity would never have been able to force its agenda to the degree that it did. I think you can make an argument that uh, there were psychedelic mysteries in Europe probably up until the time of the fall of Eleusis. Uh, Hermeticism is only one heterodox strain among many that were in existence in Europe in the late Roman period and that then partially survived into the Dark Ages. I mean, you have uh, Neoplatonism, which is uh, a group of philosophers in the, in the third and fourth century, who uh, Plotinus, Porphyry, Proclus, and that crowd. And they took Plato, the late Plato, and contorted that into uh, a mystical doctrine of uh, emanation. They were what are called emanationists. What this means is you start with, it's either called the one or the unnameable or Brahman Atman or something like that. And then you have a series of declensions into more and more material and more and more multiplistic expressions of being. These Neoplatonists were emanationists. And their theories about how the universe is constructed have become sort of the unconscious basis of all later magical speculation. Uh, it, they are the people who brought the angels into the picture so, so intensely because they were trying to create a descending hierarchy of being from the most high down to the most low. And angels once set in place uh, became a real problem for Christianity because they are um, not very easy to distinguish from the old stellar demons of, the, of paganism. Paganism was largely the belief that uh, the power of the stars could be drawn down to earth through a series, through sympathetic magic really. And uh, in the Renaissance, you know, over a period of about three generations, uh, this became a real problem because what starts out as angel magic ends up as out-and-out -out demonic conjuration, something which I've noticed my 14-year-old son has an incredibly unhealthy interest in. Uh, which I did as well at his age. I hope it's not the family curse uh, coming back. Um, yeah, so I mentioned the dating error. It was Lactantius, 
uh, was one of the fathers of the early church, one of, of the patristic writers. That's that generation of theologians uh, that followed Christ, who canonized the Christian religion. And he placed, uh, he placed Hermes Trismegistus as older than Moses, older than Pythagoras, older than Plato. And, uh, uh, and then it wasn't until uh, Marie Cassabon corrected that problem. See, we forget how the, the really transformative uh, breakthrough that was represented for Western Europe by the recovery of all of this ancient literature. It had been completely lost. Uh, and also a, a misimpression that probably needs correcting is I think most people who are not schooled in Western history think that the further back in time, the more quote-unquote superstitious people were. This isn't actually the case. It isn't the case of the further back in time you go, the more belief in demons, magical conjuration, and stuff like that you get. Uh, the uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries in Europe were periods of remarkable piety and intellectual cohesion. Of course, it was also some kind of a fascist nightmare. That's how they achieved it. They had stamped out paganism. They had pushed heresy and heterodox thinking to the very distant frontiers of the empire, uh, of the, you know, the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, uh, people were not superstitious, and people were not obsessed with horoscopes and conjuration and this sort of thing. Where that all began was... Uh, well, or where it reached its culmination is in the 16th century. The 16th century, the 1500s, it was the most magical obsessed century in the last 10. And alchemy and uh, conjuration and talismanic magic and uh, sympathetic magic, all of these things flourished really uh, not as a um, throwback, but as a kind of prelude to modern science. Modern science is an incredibly demonic enterprise. And we will see, as we discuss this stuff, that in a in curious and little, rarely discussed way, the program, uh, the agenda of, of magical dissidents in Europe have been entirely achieved by the forces of what we call modernity. It's simply that it has been done in an entirely secular metaphor. I mean, if you take even the, the trivial belief about alchemists, that they were concerned with changing lead into gold, of course that isn't what it was about, but there were plenty of con artists running around on the periphery of these deeper scenes who were claiming they could change lead into gold. Well, in the 20th century, we routinely change lead to gold. You do it with neutron bombardment in particle accelerators. And of course, it costs far more to do it than the worth of the gold that you get out. 
But that really wasn't the point, was it? It was to prove that it could be done. Uh, the dreams of creating the homunculus uh, are dreams that dovetail directly into the aspirations of modern biology, genetics, so forth and so on. Uh, the, the great chain of being of Aristotle is animated, given a dimension of motion, and lo and behold, it becomes the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution. Uh, the, uh, Mersiliad talks about this, about how all the alchemical dreams of the 15th and 16th century have been brought to fruition in the 20th century. But again, in the absence of magical rhetoric, but certainly in a spirit of magical and Faustian recklessness, for sure. I mean, this is scientists, you know, they claim such a devotion to truth that decency must never stand in the way because they serve a higher God than human values. They serve uh, the golem of the truth in some weird way that makes the truth okay even if it kills you. I studied philosophy from Paul Feyerabend and he used to say at the beginning of his Epistemology 101 course, I will teach you to recognize the truth and I will teach you to ask the question, what's so great about it? <laughs> you know, I mean, so now you've got the truth, so what's so great about it? Uh, it was 1460 when these manuscripts were brought to Florence and uh, the um, Cosimo de' Medici immediately ordered Ficino to abandon his work on, Plato, on uh, Plato and uh, and the Pymander, which was one of these uh, uh, books, which had been, it was the only one which existed in Europe, uh, even in partial form during the Dark Ages. Uh, uh, Cosimo died in, in 1464, but the translation project uh, went forward, and just so you understand that the tree, the developmental process in Western magic goes basically all goes back to this Florentine translation project and from there people who were well placed got a hold of this stuff the most important person probably being uh, uh, a person, certainly an unsung hero in the development of Western thought Trithemius, Bishop of Sponheim and Trithemius uh, wrote a book, it was really a manuscript, it was never printed as a book in his lifetime, but later, called the Stenographica. And in it, he put forth many of these magical doctrines and also encryption methods for code making and breaking so that this stuff could be circulated under the eyes of the clergy without... Uh, causing a problem. And then the, the development of Western magic splits into two strains. Uh, the Bruno strain, Giordano Bruno. I understand he's running for president of the United States this year. <laughs> Giordano Bruno and his school, he was a Franciscan monk who ended up being burned at the stake 
his sin for which he was burned at the stake was he was sitting on a rooftop of one of these Italian city-states one evening, presumably smoking some pretty decent boo that they brought in from North Africa. And uh, he was looking at the stars, and he it occurred to him, these things are suns. These little points of light are like the sun. Jesus Christ! And in a single moment, the universe became infinite. And he said, if these are suns, and he just, you know, his mind was boggled, literally. I mean, can you imagine inside the medieval worldview where they have these concentric shells of angels and demons and the, all this? Suddenly, this guy gets it in a single moment, and he sees that the universe is infinite, and he begins to say so. And this is against Aristotle. And uh, the church just goes nuts. And they drive him out of Italy. And he has a whole bunch of adventures in England and other places. Eventually, he makes the mistake of coming back to a place in northern Italy where he's betrayed by his patron. And he is, uh, he's burned at the stake for a point of view which all of us take quite for granted. The other uh, strain of magic coming down from Trithemius is the D strain. And it is a bit more accessible to people like ourselves because John D was an Englishman and he wrote in English. And so you don't have to conquer uh, 16th century Italian or, uh, or late Latin in order to read him, although he wrote a lot in Latin as well. D is a very interesting character worth spending some time on because D is the last person to be able to unify into one worldview uh, science and mathematics and magic and astrology uh, all together. So he is the greatest magician of his age and the greatest scientist of his age. The great awareness of drug use came slightly later, uh, and strangely enough, uh, the drug was opium. Uh, it's, an, it's, it's interesting, the history of opium. You know, we think of, of uh, opium and its derivatives, uh, junk and heroin, as just the lowest, well, maybe crack is now the lowest of the low, but anyway, it's a real scuzzball drug according to most people's opinion. But did you know that no, they had been using opium for 3,000 years before anybody noticed that it was an addicting drug? It was not ever noted that opium was addicting until 1611 when John Playfair a very famous English physician wrote a book in which he commented on opium and said, uh, once one has begun the habit of opium, it must be maintained unto death. So uh, in, the, in the 30 years after D, there was a great hermeticist and alchemical thinker named Paracelsus who arose on the European continent. Paracelsus is an interesting guy. He's 
essentially the inventor of drugs because he was the first person to extract herbs and to get this notion of the essence that there's that if you have a medicinal plant then there's something in there which you want to get out and concentrate he called his school of of uh, alchemy iatrochemistry the doctor's chemistry and he invented pills of the ordinary sort and uh, and uh, he said i have made a great discovery the center of my alchemical opus rests with the magic of laudanum which was of course gum opium uh, there there was a craze in the late 15th century among alchemists for opium the the alchemist von helmut uh, he he signed some of his alchemical tracts dr opiatus he, he was uh, the first croaker <laughs> they were beginning to uh, invent in fact the casa bones are considered to be the inventors of modern philology and the way you do it is by interlocking textual reference and studying locution styles and it, it was a tremendous shock to the Renaissance when they realized that what they thought was 5,000 years old was less than a thousand you know or was about a thousand years old and that's what really discredited that whole worldview which is in a way silly because who cares how old it is the question is how much sense does it make but the Renaissance was so strongly imbued with this uh, belief that the ancient things were the better that if something was shown to be not as old as previously thought then it usually went on the discard pile it was Cosimo de Medici and that family and the Borgias but you know this family there were I think 11 popes who bore the name Borgia in a hundred year period so these people were very very well connected they were very wealthy they had disposable income which was something new in the world and and they invented a whole bunch of things which god knows this city lives or dies by i mean like connoisseurship patron of patronage of the arts and uh, uh, secular research projects i mean they were funding da vinci's work on catapults and flying machines at the same time that they were keeping all these painters paid and uh, in mistresses and so forth they were uh, organizing archaeological digs people couldn't believe this stuff i mean we we have assimilated all this but they had forgotten the classical world and then and they lived you know they lived in places like rome and naples and venice but they had never dug and they'd just been quarrying the Colosseum and stuff like that. Well, then when they began bringing this stuff out of the ground, and then the Platonic corpus and all this, they just went ape for classicism. So ape that, you know, now we're this year celebrating the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage, which in a sense can be seen as the cherry on the, on the top 
of the Renaissance mental explosion, uh, we are still living in a classical world. We still react against classicism. The buildings we live in, the clothing we wear, our notion of how gentlemen behave, our attitudes toward women largely, uh, our attitudes towards private wealth, uh, all of this is classicism. And it had been dead 1,200 years before these Italians latched onto it and dusted it off and set it up. And, you know, there had the modernism, in its broadest context, whatever that means, is the first movement to come along to be able to in any way challenge classicism, romanticism, uh, mannerism, um, the Baroque, all of these are, are like facets of the classical object. It's only in modernism and what modernism represents in my humble opinion is a kind of return to the archaic Modernism deconstructs the clarity of the Western eye. If you have to date where modernism begins, it begins with Impressionism, which takes the clarity of the Western eye and begins to dissolve it, you know. And the linear, you know, the columns and lines, that's how narrative was until James Joyce and... Uh, and Henry James and, and people like that showed that narrative could be broken up. Uh, modernism is a form of primitivism, strangely enough. Uh, the people who created modernism, people like Marcel Duchamp and Picasso and the Surrealists, they were tremendously influenced, in the case of Picasso, by African art, masks and sculpture stuff that had never been seen in Paris in 1905 through 15 and everybody was tremendously excited by it. So modernism is part of this much larger phenomenon which I call the archaic revival. You know, the discovery of the unconscious through Freud and Jung, the deconstruction of the image, first the image seen through Impressionism, and then the image imagined is deconstructed through um, Surrealism and Dada, and then finally, you know, the concentration on the materials of art, which you get in Abstract Expressionism, where it is about paint. It's no longer about paint in the service of 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 uh, the visual pictorialism, it just, and then all the postmodern stuff, which is, of course, just sort of running naked, screaming through the street kind of aesthetic. See, what happened? I mean, it's very interesting. Some of you who are interested in Heidegger may know a wonderful essay by uh, Hans Jonas called the Gnostic temperament. And what he's saying in there is that the, the uh, attitude, the psychology of the late Roman Empire, let's say Rome from AD 150 to 400 or so, 
was strikingly what we would call modern. That, that a, a profound kind of exhaustion entered into the Roman psychology uh, in that late phase. They became, you know, the de a good definition of decadence is its sophistication without feeling. The Roman Empire made the emperor a god. Well, imagine the cynicism that would pervade our society if you were under state order to light candles to George Bush. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're free to think of the man as a jackass, and it's not heresy. I mean, it may be bad taste, but, or, but it isn't heresy. And uh, the Roman Empire expanded so rapidly and took in so many different kinds of people. I mean, there were, you know, the, the Jews at the end of the Mediterranean, the Parthian Empire had been partially incorporated into the Roman Empire, uh, Egyptian mystery religions and uh, African folk religion, barbarian Celtic, ideals were being imported in and it just it became uh, uh, and the state religion the religion of the emperor as god was uh, it was fairly tolerant uh, you had to burn a candle to caesar but you could also burn a candle to asarte and thoth and hermes and all these other people what got the christians in trouble was they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, give caesar his due even though it says to do this, you know, they kept claiming uh, that they were had some kind of political agenda. They kept expecting the return of a political figure. The Romans hated that because they didn't. They saw it as a political force. Well, in that situation, then, after you see, you have to talk about early Christianity to get this stuff in context. Uh, people don't understand how shaped our knowledge of the origins of Christianity are with good reason because the religion wants you to believe that it's all very cut and dried there are real mysteries surrounding the birth of Christianity let me just run through it a little bit um, we all know or most of us know if you're not completely secular uh, the Christmas story and it begins and Caesar Augustus decreed that a census should be taken of all the world, and each was going to his village to register. Do you all know this story? And so this explains why a pregnant Galilean woman, nine months pregnant, is 110 miles away from her home village in Jerusalem. We're told that they are obeying the dictates of Caesar Augustus to participate in this census of the empire and we're told that Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea at this time there was no census ordered by Caesar Augustus no record exists of this anywhere and if this had happened it would have been an enormous bureaucratic task involving hundreds of clerks and the coordination of data from all parts of the empire it would have been a shtick of some sort and there's nothing nothing only this reference in the whole story of Christ well you know weird 
Okay, so then you move on. The assumption is that Christ was born in 6 BC uh, under the conjunctio maximus of Jupiter and Saturn. That places, the, if you believe the Gospels, that he was killed at age 33, that means the crucifixion must have been in 27. Well, uh, there is no reference to Christ outside the Gospels until AD 71. What was happening between 27 and 71? It's damn near 50 years. And the whole thing falls silent. And then uh, what we get in 71 in, um, I think, the Roman, uh, it's, I guess it's in Suetonius. Suetonius, who was a Roman historian and contemporary, he says in a long rap about something else, he says, Jews have recently come to Rome and uh, caused public disturbances at the behest of their leader, Crispus. This is as close as we get. We don't even know if Crispus is Christ. We just accept that this must be so because Suetonius is telling us that Jews of a religious type have come to Rome and caused this agitation. Uh, uh, the, it, some people have even wanted to that, uh, that Christianity was invented in the late 60s and that the that there never was a person named Christ that zealots who were preparing the uprising of 69 against the Roman Empire uh, created a mythical figure of a generation earlier and uh, uh, used this mythical figure as a symbol of their rebellion it would be sort of as if we were to get into Joe Hill. You all know who Joe Hill is? The engine of socialism is a slipping back. Come on, all you workers, shovel sand on the track. Joe Hill was a martyr to, to social reform in this country. I believe he was shot by a firing squad in Utah in 1913. Well, we could reach back to Joe Hill and make him the founder of our movement and say what a great guy he was and collect stories about his life and, and it, we could use it to center ourselves and build a kind of social reform movement in the name of Joe Hill. I just think it's very peculiar that we know so little about Christ when he had such a major role to play. I mean, take a guy like Manai. Manai, the founder of Manism, who was uh, born uh, in, uh, I think, around 320. Uh, God, we know everything about Manai. We have his tax returns. I kid you not. We have the guy's tax returns. And we know what he looked like. We know who his friends were. We know he had marital problems. A real person, you know. And yet his religion was stomped into oblivion. So there's something funny about all this. Well, Mandaeanism is a very old religion. Um, it arose around Jerusalem in the, a couple of centuries before Christ. It was a baptismal cult. And uh, I'm, I'm really into the Mandaeans, actually. They were the oldest continuous Western religion in the world uh, 
uh, with a Gnostic intent. And they started, and they were probably, they started out as Jews, but they were persecuted. They claimed John the Baptist as one of their own. And he was a member of some kind of baptismal cult because we know he baptized Christ. But they, they were driven out of uh, the area around Jerusalem and then for centuries they were in Lebanon and then they slowly made their way across Persia and uh, they ended up in the swamps of Iraq and Iran. Well, Mandaeans are very, very interesting. They, uh, they have their own written language, although in 1847 there was a cholera epidemic that wiped out 90% of the priesthood and only priests were allowed to learn to read and write this language. I have some uh, facsimile manuscripts from the Vatican Library. I sort of think that we all should become Mandaeans, that of all the religions I've ever looked at and studied, it seems to me the most psychedelic, the most sort of ethically correct. I mean, they are in there, and it would be a great religion to practice on a world scale because they're into caring for the land. They're river nuts. They love rivers and they build their, they build a cult hut called a mandai and they always divert a little ditch through it and then they do their, their ritual baptisms and stuff like that there. But their folk tales and their uh, religious beliefs are very interesting. It's like a religion of biology. The highest god in Mandayanism is called Hibble Zaiwa, and Hibble Zaiwa is always referred to as they. So it's that they are in charge, and it's uh, beautiful scriptural stuff. Uh, they're very much like Orthodox Jews, only more so in that if you're a, a, a religious Mandayan, your life is ruled by all kinds of uh, things, sort of like the rules of kosher. The most difficult rule that these people are asked to keep in their own lives is that if you're really a devout Mandayan, you are considered polluted if your eye falls on an unbeliever and an unbeliever is a non-Mandayan. So you can imagine uh, how difficult it is when you're down to four or five hundred people to make sure that's the only people you ever see. The only profession that a Mandayan man can uh, follow and not require ritual decontamination every day is silversmithing. So if you ever go to Baghdad, <laughs> not likely too soon, but if you ever go to Baghdad or Basra or Kirkuk, there are communities of these people and you find them by going to the silver markets and then through discreet inquiry, uh, you, you can find them. Uh, it, folklorists, folkloric anthropologists have developed all these rules. If a religion makes something taboo, you can usually bet that that means they were into it at some point. Because when a religion makes something taboo, it means that there has been a reformist upheaval inside the religion. This is probably how Soma was lost to the ancient Hindus, you know. Uh, 
uh, it's how Zoroaster was called the great reformer and he was the great reformer because he suppressed a lot of indigenous shamanic cults uh, and some people think that he actually attempted to suppress Hauma and Hauma is the Avestan uh, counterpart of Soma if any of you are interested in all this this book by Flattery and Schwartz called uh, uh, what is it called? Hauma and Harmaline in Iranian Religion it's from the University of California Press and they make a very strong case that Soma couldn't was not mushrooms that it was Pagaman Harmala and it's really a great, it's a really interesting book. I mean, I learned things that I had, didn't know. For instance, uh, in the pre-Zoroastrian phase of Iranian religion, drugs were not only used to access the spiritual world, but they actually said there was no other way to do it which is sort of my position. So it was nice to know that these pre-Zoroastrian Iranian light religions, uh, they, they were into what they called the Menog, M-E-N-O-G, the Menog, and it's another dimension. And you can only attain knowledge of it through the use of drugs. But the Menog existence is where the dead people are. And what their religion was about was you get to know your own soul through using drugs and you approach the, it's like, a, it's like visiting somebody in stir. You go and your soul comes and meets you, comes through the monog existence and meets you at the membrane. And the idea is that during life you must learn to recognize your soul because after death, if you can't pick it out of the soul swarm, then you will be somehow uh, incompleted in the after death world. Yeah. You, you all have heard of Dionysius, who most people tend to connect to Bacchus, the, the drunken late Roman god of wine. But the early Dionysius is a much, much weirder figure. The early Dionysius uh, is uh, an androgyne, always in the company of women, a god of ecstatic frenzy. And what the enemies of the Dionysian religion always claimed was, first of all, women were the, the major followers of Dionysius, and they would uh, intoxicate themselves in some way, and then holding hands dance through the countryside and uh, and uh, rend their clothing and just carry on outrageously and what the enemies of the Dionysian religion claimed was that they became so frenzied that these women who were called Manaeids uh, ate their own children this was the lie spread about the Dionysian religion well the story of the birth of Dionysius is very interesting because his father was Zeus, the hidden higher all father, analogous to God the Father in Christianity, but his mother was Simila. And in some versions, Simila is a mortal woman 
the daughter of King Cadmus of Thebes, but in other versions, she's herself some kind of a goddess. Anyway, she was one of these many affairs that Zeus had. He was always impregnating women and, and bearing children. And uh, in the eighth month of her pregnancy, she was struck by lightning and killed. And she was very dear to Zeus. And when he came upon her dead, he immediately performed a caesarean operation. And he cut open his thigh and he put the child into his own thigh and laced up the wound. And the child was born out of the wound six weeks later. Now, this may be grotesque and peculiar, but notice that what we have here is something close to a virgin birth. It's, uh, it's born of the father is what we have. And Dionysius was then called the twice-born god because he was born once by caesarean section from his mother and born again six weeks later from the thigh of the father. And it's thought that this Dionysian impulse in the hands of these uh, mystical Jews became then the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception and the whole notion of an immaculately conceived child. Christ is a type of Isis. I mean, it's heresy to say so, but comparative religionists have been saying this for centuries. Um, Dionysius was a religion of, of orgy and ecstasy, typical of this period in Greece. Another religious system that was sort of complementing the Hermetica and developing alongside it was um, Gnosticism. And, you know, I said a few minutes ago that the psychology of the late West Roman Empire was very modern. Gnosticism is a very, very modern impulse. It may not at first appear so because ancient Gnosticism is freighted with angels, demons, what we would call superstition. But if you strip away all that Baroque stuff, you come to a philosophy very similar to the philosophy that many of us have accepted really without thinking. We just call it modern attitudes. But the idea in Gnosticism is that you're on your own, you know? There, there ain't no free lunch. If, a God, if God did make the universe, he disappeared shortly afterwards and has no interest in you, your fate, your fears, your hope. Gnostics were profoundly phobic of the world. And uh, they uh, were either very ascetic cults or they were very uh, libertine like cults springing from the same idea which was that they did not belong in this universe they were from a different place and their whole concern was to escape they are the ones who decided that the earth is an iron prison uh, they didn't like to have children because they felt that to have a child is to trap light in matter 
the only, in many Gnostic sects, the only forms of sexual activity that they approved of were forms that were guaranteed to not lead to conception. So oral sex, anal sex, whatever. But never sex which could lead to conception because that would trap the light and that was an abomination. Needless to say, these sects died out in a hurry uh, because they were self-limiting. Man, uh, Mandianism, which is an old, old cult in that part of the world, forbids the use of mushrooms, which is puzzling since there are none. You know, and they don't forbid much, but they go way out of their way to forbid mushrooms. Uh, out of all this turmoil, I mean, it was very much like modern times. The whole Hellenistic world was awash in religious speculation. On every street corner, they were casting horoscopes and prescribing diets. And, you know, there were the, the temple prostitutes. So, so there was a whole uh, hedonic element uh, in sexuality. Orgy was a style in some religious organizations. And uh, out of all of this religious foment, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, Chaldean oracularism, uh, Jewish syncretism, so forth and so on, uh, and Christianity was in there. But it was just one in the crowd, but with sharpened elbows and a sense of organization, it was able to slowly worm its way into a position of dominance. The, the real Christians, whatever that means, probably were stamped out under the name of pagans. You see, what happened was the message of Christianity was that the end of the world was imminent. This is the other thing that they were into that has also re-emerged in modern times, is the eminence of the end of the world. And um, so for about 180 years after Christ, or 150 years, everybody just was like so stoned out on this rap that no, organ no serious organization got done. And they just waited for the end of the world in little communities practicing voluntary poverty and, you know, doing their thing. And then it began to slowly dawn on people that it had been a long time since the Messiah's promise. And it was kind of stretching out a little. And so then certain mentalities in that situation said, uh, you know, this, you know, return of the Messiah is all very well. But I think we should get some real estate under our control and uh, begin a vigorous building program and maybe uh, found some schools and stuff like that. So these religions began to become, to turn away from their end of the world ecstatic millenarianism and to see themselves as organizing for the long haul. And... Um, it was in this atmosphere that the Hermetic books were produced and written down. The chief magical ritual of Hermeticism is the invocation, the ability to call stellar demons down into statues. And then these statues prophesy. And uh, this is why Christianity is... Uh, 
it takes the Jewish aversion to idol worship and just raises it to a whole new level of intensity because they didn't they were freaked out by this animating of statues with stellar demons thing that the hermeticists were into I mean when you're reading a 1500 year old account of a magical invocation uh, if we are to believe them what happened was by singing certain songs burning certain incense and performing these rituals uh, at certain times that were astrologically correct they could cause these things called decans which are, are zodiacal demons of some sort there are three decans to each zodiacal sign see modern astrology has completely largely forgotten this I mean there are people who do deconic astrology but you have to pay through the nose because of course this is a lost and dying art uh, but they would somehow be able to draw these decans down into the statue and then they could uh, extract knowledge from the statue and uh, you know th this is this would lay the basis for these sympathetic magics which were then later developed in the Renaissance it's quite powerful actually this is why this book I recommended is so interesting the one on spiritual and demonic magic by Walker because it uh, it shows you how by you living a certain life you know these Renaissance princes were incredibly wealthy so you have a suite of apartments which overlook uh, uh, you know the plaza San Marco in Venice and certain colors are prescribed that the walls be painted you only wear certain kinds of robes made of certain materials you perform your magical invocations at certain times of day burning certain incenses and they were big on fresh air and light it isn't the dark image of magic that we get of you know the stirring cauldron and the bat-faced familiar and all that no it's all about open air light wind blowing through flowing silk robes it they were angelic magicians is what they were and they were evoking these things through the use of sigils which are magical symbols and then there became stress on magical alphabets Enochian is one of these magical alphabets well one of the subjects which these entities that D and Kelly were dealing with returned to again and again and again were um, the, the uh, Enochian this language which they said was the true language that Abraham used to communicate with the angels and it has a special alphabet uh, an alien alphabet and there has even been published an Enochian dictionary of some four or five thousand words uh, there was a very bizarre this is just a footnote but a very bizarre episode in the mid 1950s there was a a woman who was a kind of clairvoyant and uh, she was in contact with flying saucers 
I mean, now everybody and their dog is in contact with flying saucers. But at that time, it was fairly rare. Rare enough that she became, uh, she became an object of interest to the CIA. And at one point, she was in the CIA building in Langley, Virginia, and they were interviewing her. And, uh, and uh, she said, well, there's a, there's a flying saucer right outside the window. And, and these guys rushed to the window and looked, and there was some kind of thing in the sky. And she said, it's, it's giving me a message for you, for this colonel. <laughs> and, and, and the message was, Afa, 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 A-F-F-A. So he wrote this down. Well, then I, 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 don't, I didn't read this. I looked it up. I had a hunch. Afa is the Enochian word for nothingness. If you like this podcast, but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears, perhaps you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Simply search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and it shall appear. Or click the link in the program notes of this episode. I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully you'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments, so with your help, let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there. I know I don't produce much content on Patreon, uh, but uh, that's not why you should support, because I do produce a lot of content on the podcast and on my YouTube channel. Uh, And right now, I'm hard at work uh, on my history of alchemy, and also I'm actually making a little mini documentary on a certain film director that I hope you'll enjoy. If you go to my YouTube channel, I did a John D video uh, recently. Uh, You might enjoy that. Another reason why I don't have so much content on Patreon is that I have a family to support. So I need to stick my head in the rat race on a daily basis. As do you as well, I'm sure. Are we, as the Old Testament claims, doomed to till the land forever until saved? Or shall we seize our faith and create a new world? Well, if you appreciate the podcast, consider becoming a patron. All the links to my social media, YouTube and everything is on naturalbornalchemist.com. Now for a cover of my favorite NoFX song, Laurie Myers. Uh, the cover is made by Billy the Kid and you can find her YouTube channel easily. It's called Billy the Kid Official. Freedom is in the mind. Laurie Myers used to live upstairs My parents had been friends for years And almost every afternoon we'd play forbidden games Nine years old, there's no such thing Recognition of face 
that brought me back Was a familiar mark as it flashed across the screen I bought some magazines Some videotape scenes Incriminating acts I felt that I could think I sell my body, I merely sell my time I ain't no Cinderella, I ain't waiting for no prince To save me, in fact, until just now I was doing just fine And on and on I know what degradation feels like I felt it on the floor in the factory where I worked once before I took control Now I am certain me And the 50k I make this year Will take me anywhere I please 